Welcome to CU20 Podcast. We are a group of young adult Christians living in Montreal who seek to answer questions about faith and following Jesus in the modern world. Today's podcast is by a guest speaker, Ryan Boussière, and he'll be speaking on Luke 11. We hope you enjoy. Cool. Well, good evening. How are you guys doing? Good. Um, who is from, is anybody here from the States? Just curious. Yeah, a couple states people. I was actually, I'm from Canada, uh, but I grew up in Texas. Um, and about a year and a half ago, I don't even remember what all you just said uh, regarding information on me, but moved here from Texas uh, a year and a half ago. Moved to Texas when I was seven uh, in 1996. So I'm 30, uh, if you do the math on that. Uh, it should add up. Um, actually, no, that will add up. I'm calculating getting held back a year. That doesn't have any effect on the years. Anyway, here we are. Um, so my wife and I, we moved here from Texas in uh, 2018 uh, to work at Church 21 and uh, get trained with the hope, yeah, of going to Toronto and church planting, um, but really with no rush towards that. We're just kind of holding that with open hands. We think it's in the future, uh, but we're just happy to be in Montreal serving here and um, occasionally get to partner with Chris uh, and your church specifically with youth stuff. So that's been a huge blessing to me. Um, I've just been blessed. Like, I don't get a lot of time with Chris, um, but every time I do, I just leave feeling just really encouraged by the Spirit of God in him and um, just who he is. And so uh, I just want to say thank you to Chris. And are you guys, like, are y'all thankful for Chris as your pastor? And thanks, brother. Um, so I'm going to jump in. Um, tonight is a bit of a heavy passage. I feel heavy uh, about it, if, if you know what I mean, like a spiritual weight about it, um, because the good news of the gospel is really, really good news, and it's, uh, I really don't want you to miss it, and I really don't want myself uh, to miss out on the joy possible in Christ, and I know that I'm very prone to, I know that uh, we as Christians are very prone to, um, so I'm going to pray for us, we're going to jump in, um, know that even though it's going to be heavy at parts of it, most likely, um, that uh, the good news is coming, okay? So we, we will dive into gospel, um, but we're going to let Jesus take us there with some, some hard truth in the process. So let me just pray one more time, um, and if you'll pray with me. Uh, Jesus, I just ask simply, um, would you bruise and wound as necessary to bind up and heal, Lord? Would you speak to us through your word that divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, uh, and would you say what needs to be said to our hearts so that we don't miss out uh, on salvation and the full joy of abiding in you, Lord. We need you. Um, I can't do this without you. Would you speak through me? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Uh, question, uh, has anybody ever read um, anything by, I don't even know how to pronounce this name, so just forgive me, uh, Ayn Rand. I think I might have said it right. Ayn Rand, okay, Ayn Rand. We'll just say that that's the Texas way to say it. Uh, Ayn Rand, eh? I just said A in a Texas accent. This is falling apart. Anyway, Ayn Rand. Um, yeah, so some of you have read Ayn Rand. Uh, Ayn Rand was a philosopher and novelist in the 1960s, 70s, and throughout the rest of her life, um, but really kind of came to the forefront of things in the 1960s. Um, I was reading a bunch on her so I don't butcher some details. If you're like a philosophy major and you're like, you missed a couple nuanced things in there, just have mercy. Um, but in the 1960s, she talked about this thing, uh, this idea of the second-hander, 
Has anyone ever heard of this, uh, what it means to be a second-hander? Um, a, a second-hander here, I'm just going to read you two quotes uh, from something she wrote about these type of people that she called second-handers. And, and I think that there's a, a, a measure of truth to what she's saying. So this is what she says. After centuries of being pounded with the doctrine that altruism um, is the ultimate ideal, men have accepted it in the only way it could be accepted, by seeking self-esteem through others, by living secondhand. So that's, that's her idea of you're seeking self-esteem through others, that secondhand living. She, here's a little bit more to explain it. She said, if any man stopped and asked himself whether he's ever held a truly personal desire, he'd find the answer. He'd see that all his wishes, his efforts, his dreams, his ambitions are motivated by other men. He's not really struggling even for material wealth, but for the second-hander's delusion, prestige, a stamp of approval, not his own. He can find no joy in the struggle and no joy when he has succeeded. He can't say about a single thing, this is what I wanted because I wanted it, not because it made my neighbors gape at me. Uh, Ayn Rand's philosophy uh, has uh, much that the Christians would, that as, as Christians we would say, no, I don't agree with that. Uh, I don't think uh, that that's accurate. But I, I do think that on this specific part of the definition of how she would define a second-hander, now she's going to take that and she's going to apply it and say all religion is second-hand living. I don't believe that. We don't believe that. But in this idea of living for the the praise of man. She's saying something that's pretty biblical, that's pretty uh, accurate, that a virtue performed merely uh, to gain approval hasn't been performed. Like if you're doing something virtuous for the sake, it's a means to the end of someone else's approval of you, you have not done anything virtuous. It's an it's a insightful thing that the deed is hollow when it, and it falls short of bringing ultimate happiness, which is what she would be aiming for. So, so Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand, however you say it, she was a, 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 a type of hedonist. Um, do you guys know what a hedonist is? Uh, somebody who seeks pleasure, right? Uh, we, we live in a culture that is deeply hedonistic, but hers is a bit more nuanced. Um, she made room for some aspects of virtue within it. And so uh, we're not going to dive full into Ayn Rand's philosophy tonight, um, but I want to point out this, this second-hander thing that she had, um, and specifically, uh, her, even with her hedonism, her form of hedonism, she fell desperately short of biblical love. So she would have us, she, she identified a problem, and then she wrongly identified a solution uh, because of things within her worldview. I'm not going to make the case uh, for all of that tonight, because that would be uh, a lecture in itself, but she, she led us from error to another error. And I think this is something Satan loves to do. I know this is something Satan loves to do. Uh, give you uh, two ditches and get you to run from one into the other, right? It's a pendulum. Culture is just, if you trace the Western civilization, you see this pendulum swinging back and forth from idea to idea. Sometimes it's rotating as it swings, so it's slightly different. But we run from error to error. And Satan doesn't care which ditch you're in as long as you're in a ditch. So he would gladly scream legalism if it will lead you into license and he'd rather scream that's licentiousness if it will lead you into a type of legalism like this is satan's game and uh, if you haven't figured it out in your life you're going to find yourself swinging back and forth from the leaning to one ditch or the other it's a question of 
of which one is the danger for you today. And so today what I want to do is I want to dive a little bit into the, the truth that, she, that Ayn Rand got close to in this idea of the second-hander uh, because she's not the first person to point this out. Uh, Jesus cared deeply about this idea of the second-hander, uh, this, this idea of doing virtue uh, for these secondary reasons. So we're going to see that um, in Luke 11 through uh, 37 through 44. So if you have your Bible, Luke 11, 37 through 44. I'm going to read it all at once. It said, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, that peop and people walk over them without knowing it. So Jesus is, in the first century, and the, these Pharisees, if you, you don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee was uh, like the religious elite in Jesus' day. Like these were the guys that the community looked up to as knowing the law, as being more radical followers of the law than, than anyone. Like they they made rules on top of the rules of the law to just not get too close to breaking them. They excelled in a lot of these things in the law. And so if you're one of Jesus' disciples and you're in the first century, like you're hoping uh, that this, you're, this is the Messiah, this is the Savior we've been waiting for who's going to deliver us from bondage to the Roman uh, to, to the Roman Empire. Uh, he's going to deliver us. He's going to bring the kingdom back, the kingdom of heaven. It's going to happen with their perception of this. You see Jesus, and you're probably getting excited as you see him talking with the Pharisees, at least at first. Like, this is what should be happening. Yes, the guys. Those are the guys. He finally got to talk to them, and they're going to recognize that he's the Messiah, and he's going to bring us all together, and we're going to storm uh, the, the Roman guards, and we're going to take Jerusalem back. We're going to take our place back, and this land is going to become ours again. But that's not what happened. Um, the, this Pharisee invites Jesus into his house, and Jesus goes, and, and something completely different happens. Uh, he goes in, and there's this man-made tradition, right? They're, these guys are experts at these. They've built these traditions. Uh, they're trying to be pure, at least in some form, uh, and they've got this thing where they wash their hands for purity, right? There's these Levitical laws about being pure, and then they've built these traditions on top of them. We, we wash our hands, we wash our feet before dinner, all of this. Uh, and Jesus goes in, and intentionally, he doesn't wash. He, he sits down, uh, and the Pharisee is shocked. He's, he's offended. How dare you not take our rabbinical traditions? How dare you... Uh, Put these aside. You are the one they're calling the Messiah. How dare you? 
and he sits at the Pharisee's table and he breaks this social norm. Uh, and we don't know what the Pharisee says. All we know is Jesus responds with what seems to be anger, right? He responds with what seems to be a ferocity. He says, you fools. Now the scriptures tell us in other places, I think it is Jesus himself, he says like, be careful about saying you fool to your brother, right? Or you'll be in danger of the hellfire. Why? Because uh, if we're just hastily throwing away terms like this, but this is Jesus. He's all knowing. He, he sees who this person is. And his response is to say, you fools. I don't know if it's anger, maybe a mixture of anger. I don't know if it's just pleading. Probably both, right? Uh, and anger at the offense of their hearts. And, and then this pleading for, are you kidding me? Like, you are supposed to be the religious elite, you fools. And he compares them to some things that we wouldn't want to be compared to. Uh, it might sound strange at first. Uh, you're a dirty dish. Uh, you are uh, like a cup that is just so clean on the outside, like polished, shiny, beautiful, like the best china in your house, right? Your, your best glasses, your best bowls, and it looks so nice. And then it gets set before you, and you look inside, and it's full of worms and filth and disgusting things. He calls them dirty dishes. He calls them unmarked graves, that they are like... Uh, this idea of, of on the surface, it looks great. It looks maybe even nice. Maybe you'd even sit down and have a picnic, but you don't know that underneath you, when you're engaging with these people, although it looks nice on the surface, underneath is full of death. Jesus is keying in on a, a, a danger. This is my burden. This is what my fear for myself is, my fear for you, um, is that it's really possible. This is going to be a very simple, short sermon tonight. It is so possible for you to live a very religious, even Christian life and be dead inside, to be like an unmarked grave, to have this beautiful picture on the outside, but on the inside for it to be disgusting. These men are, they're, they're not just taking religion for granted. They're tithing, it says, on their spices, right? On dill and cumin and all of these things. They give, tithing means giving 10%, and they're giving 10% of even their spices, right? Some of us struggle to give 10% of our finances to the church, and they're tithing on their spice rack. It's crazy. Uh, and Jesus says to them, it's worthless. All of your religion, all your life is devoted to this thing, and I'm telling you, you're full of death. This is deeply offensive. In his house, why would Jesus tell him this? Well, because it's the truth. And so Jesus uh, pleads with him in verse 42, uh, as it, it tells us about the spices, he says, Man, you, it's not that you shouldn't be doing these things. It's good for you to give yourself to radical obedience to God, but you're not giving yourself to radical obedience to God. You're forsaking justice you're forsaking the love of God. And he says, these things you should have done without neglecting the others. Matthew 22, he says it this way in verse 37 through 40. He says, uh, it says, and when he said to him, so he's being asked by, uh, by someone, what man, what's the most important of the laws, right? This is something a Pharisee would have loved to talk about. And uh, of all the laws of God, what, what's like number one? Uh, I, don't, I don't know if maybe you're that sort of way where you like to 
prioritize things, make lists. And like this guy is saying, like, if I'm going to figure this out, like, I just want to know what's the most important thing. And Jesus says the same thing that he says to this Pharisee, essentially. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the laws and the prophets. Not only should these things never be neglected, this justice in the love of God, right? Justice, loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, or, or the love of God. Not should these, these not only shouldn't be neglected, they're primary. They have the primary role. They're a primacy. They're most important, Jesus says. And the Pharisees have found a way to neglect the two most important parts of the law while filling their life with religion, filling their life with what seemed to be good deeds, even radical ones at times. Verse 41, he says, but give as alms those things that are within and behold, everything is clean to you. So Jesus is is saying something very specific. I want your heart. Like, I don't care if, if you give me everything externally, if you do everything to a T, everything I've asked externally, but I don't have your heart, I don't care. I want your heart. Jesus tells a parable, uh, or it's not a parable, he, 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 he tells of the future uh, in, in another, I think it's Matthew 7, um, where there's a day, on the day of judgment, many are going to come to him and say, Jesus, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we, we do mighty works in your name? Uh, and, and Jesus says, is going to say to them, he tells them, I'll, I'll say to you, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus wants your heart. He doesn't just want your actions. He wants to know you and for you to be known by him. The Pharisees had an external picture of righteousness that was incredible, better than most of us can do. But inside they were full of death, which brings up a question. What on earth was their motivation? Like, why would anybody give it all they have with their spice rack and yet not give it all they have with the weighty matters of the love, their, their heart, their love of justice, right? Of loving their neighbor as themselves. Like, how is it possible that we could be so devoted in certain parts of the law that it's like our whole life? Like, how, how's that possible and we still miss the heart of it? You know, because Jesus, he, when he talks about these people casting out demons, he doesn't deny that they cast out the demons. He doesn't deny that they worked miracles. I don't know if you've casted out a demon in here uh, or if you've worked miracles, uh, but Jesus is, it says it's, it's possible to do that and not know him. That's what he seems to suggest. And here to the Pharisee, we see this picture of this crazy external uh, alignment with aspects of the law but no heart. How is that possible? Verse 43 says, Woe to you Pharisees. It's pronouncing judgment on them. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. What's the problem with these Pharisees? How is it possible? They're second-handers. They do 
as much as they're willing to do to get something secondhand. They don't do righteous deeds for righteousness themselves. They don't tithe their spice rack because they just want, they think it's just so good and right to tithe their spice rack. No, they love the best seat in the synagogue. They love the esteem of being a Pharisee. They love being seen as a lover of God more than they love God. They're second-handers. Their obedience means nothing more than it's, it's a means to become esteemed in their community. And this is a danger for us. Like, you don't have to be a Jewish Pharisee to fall prey to this danger. It, it, Pharisees can exist in the Christian worldview. Pharisees can exist not, not living in conformity with actual Christian teaching, but in the Christian community, it is so easy to become a Pharisee. It's so easy to become a legalist. It's so easy to become legalism. It's not always doing things just to, to try to earn your own righteousness before God. It's, it's, it's doing things to try to gain the approval of the community and just doing just enough. Just the external stuff. I, I, I think if the Pharisees were alive today and they were part of the church, I suspect their Instagram would be full of pictures of their quiet times with the Lord, their good deeds, and none of their issues. They wouldn't, they wouldn't talk at all about their sin, but they would be quick to share their victories. They'd curate an image of holiness that strikes just the right balance of, of supposed humility and boldness, and then they would lie in bed at night waiting for the likes and comments on those posts, analyzing them, right? You've probably done it, I've done it, and it's deathly, you know? It's deathly. These are, the, man, I went to the, I don't know if you've been to the, the graveyard, uh, the big one. What's it called? Somebody help me out. That one. You guys know it. Um, man, I was walking in that graveyard, and I just had this thought. This place, there are more graves than I can imagine. I was searching around. I have family that is from Montreal, and I couldn't find any Boussiers, that's my last name, couldn't find any of them in there. I, I'm, I know I could have gone and asked uh, where they were, but I was just like, maybe I'll see one. Uh, I have a whole lineage of all my family from Montreal. Couldn't find any, couldn't walk around within an hour the whole place. It's huge, if you've been there. And what struck me is this death that I'm surrounded by is the result of one thing. Pride, a bite of an apple, or not an apple, a fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because we could become like God, because we could become autonomous, we could be seen and praised, we could be the one who others are dependent on and, and look up to. And it's easy to get to point at Adam and Eve and say, man, if I'd been there, I would have done something different, but... No, I wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. That pride is in your heart now. And it is the, the, the cause of all of the death in this universe. All of the death on this planet. All of the death in that cemetery. Because of pride. And it continues to live in us. I think they would, just other things, I think they would be looking for ways to inspire others looking for truth in God's word. 
as a means of something that they could give to others, but never actually going to Jesus just to be with Jesus. If they preached, which they probably would, they'd probably judge their sermons by the amount of applause or thanks. All in when they're preaching, immediately after, they're no longer a minister. They're here to receive the praise. They have been acting on the stage. They probably would be seeking to be seen as humble, to be seen as confident, um, entrapped in insecurity because they're never actually seeking the confidence that God calls us to for its own sake. So they're, they're always, if you're, if you're just seeking to be seen as something, you're most likely not going to find it, especially when it's confidence. You know, we could go on and on. How many things do we seek as a means to some other end than its own goodness and just fellowship with Jesus? Like how many things? How often in worship do we pay attention to the voices around us and think, oh, I wonder if what they think about how I'm standing, oh, lifting my hand, oh, do, if I were to sit down right now and pray because I feel a weight and I feel uh, like the Lord wants to do business in my heart, or if I were to go and ask somebody to pray for me because I, I need to confess something, well, if I do that, people in the room might think that I don't have it all together. And I'm curating, curating an image of myself as a mature Christian. Have you been there? We, we make these images of ourselves that show ourselves to be the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. You don't have to be. You don't have to be. In fact, when you curate an image of yourself that doesn't shine on your own sin, you point people to your greatness and you give them no hope. Their hope is Jesus, not your perfection. And actually, when you shine on the fact that you've got sin in your own heart that Jesus has to save you from, you give them hope. Because they're not alone in their sin. I'm getting ahead. I'm burdened by this message because it applies deeply to myself. Man, I, I, am, I have wrestled with this. I have, there's so many times I've, I've stepped back from obedience to the Lord because of pride or, or times where I've stepped into it because of pride and, and it can snap just like that. I'm aware that as soon as I get off of preaching, if, if I have conversations with any of you, I hope you'll still have conversations with me, uh, know that there'll be mixed motives. There'll be things in my heart where I'm going to have to be fighting. Like if, oh, did that, did they like what I said? Did they not like what I said? Did it help them? Or does that mean I'm good? And, and we just desperately need the words of Paul. What do I have that I didn't receive? What did you have that you didn't receive? But our hearts are so quick to take grace and turn it into merit, to take what he's given to me and make it what I've done. We are so quick to do it. I know I'm not the only one. I know it. And it's death. And when we do it, we run into death. We run into darkness. Are you an unmarked grave? Are you settling for a surface-level Christianity that is preoccupied with looking good and never gets to actually spending time with Jesus? I want to read you from John, uh, a, a verse from, a couple of verses from John 3. If you have your scripture 
with you. It's uh, in verse 19. It says this. This is what's happening in the Pharisee's heart. This is what happens in our hearts. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the problem with Jesus. And and I say that not as if there's a true problem with Jesus. This is the problem for us with Jesus, that when you step into the light, you can see what's there. When you step into the light, you can see what's there. And what's there is a bunch of brokenness, a bunch of sin, a bunch of death. And if we want to, to have our perfect images of ourselves, we will never have Jesus. Because you'll have to stay in the darkness for that. You'll have to stay hidden away never letting people in, never letting Jesus in to the parts of you that need him most, to the parts of you he came to save and to change. Our works, even the good ones, are evil because they don't have the love of God in them. The reason Jesus doesn't care about your external works is because your the external thing like yeah it matters but that's not what makes it good you can live a very nice friendly kind life as a non-christian you know the, the that sin at its root is not uh, it we elevate the second commandment to be the first um do, do you understand that we, we make loving our neighbor the standard of righteousness. And so the world often thinks like, man, like you Christians, like you can be a good person and, uh, and not follow Jesus. And you know what? In, in a sense, you can. You can be very nice. But sin isn't just about being nice to one another. Yeah, that's a great step. Like we want that. We want societies that do that. The heart of sin is not honoring God as he's worthy. And when we're nice to our neighbor, when we insist on loving our neighbor, uh, we're lit and we don't love God, we're radically inconsistent because the basis of the value of my neighbor, the only objective basis is they're made by the God who's infinitely worthy of my adoration, of my praise, of my honor. That's the heart of righteousness. That's the heart of goodness. That's what God is after. He wants not just your deeds. He wants your heart. And you were made to enjoy him. Like you were, and, and he, he made you to be, to share in his own satisfaction in his eternal love. Like how good is that? <laughs> that we were made to share in love freely given to us and to just spread that to one another. This is righteousness. This is what Jesus came and lived perfectly that we couldn't and died so that we could receive his righteousness as our acceptance with him. This is what, this is the good news. This is John, uh, I have it in here somewhere, but I don't, uh, John 1, no, I'm skipping around. I'll just tell you, he says in John 3, 17, uh, that 
I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. The Son of Man didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that it would be saved through him. This is a few verses before he gets into this stuff about darkness. Jesus didn't come to condemn. The world's already condemned. The world's already full of evil and darkness. Jesus came to save it. He died in our place so that we could walk into the light and not be destroyed. Rightly so. We would deserve hell. We would deserve destruction. And Jesus took destruction on the cross so that we could come into the light without the shame. What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? They hid in shame. They covered themselves up. And Jesus says, I'll be your covering. You can come into the light. You can be with me. I'll wash away your sin. You can come to me, and then I'll change you. It's 1 John 1, 9. It says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness, transformation. Forgiveness, cleansing. He will, he'll forgive us and he'll begin a process of change. But here's the reality. He only changes what we bring to him into the light. He gives us the message of the gospel to say, you can come, it's safe. Come into the light. And then he says, come. And we acknowledge our sin. And he saves us. And he forgives us. But, but what happens after that? For too many of us, we get in and we think, okay, now I just need to stay clean. And we forget that he is our covering. And as we walk with Jesus, get closer to the light, more exposure is going to happen. And so often we run back into the darkness because we're shocked that there's more sin than we thought at the beginning and we're not comfortable with it. And the Christian life is learning to be comfortable with just bringing everything into the light. Killing the pride. Pride dies a thousand deaths in confession. Pride dies in confession. It dies in the light we expose. We humiliate ourselves before God and say, this is in me. It is ridiculous how much pride I have, like me. It's ridiculous how much arrogance I have. It's ridiculous how much I can twist things and make them all about me. Subtly. So subtle that I'm hiding the truth from myself and Jesus says, come into the light. And then I get close and I start to sense maybe he's going to have me uh, repent of something, confess something, maybe go and have a conversation I don't want to have with someone to apologize to them. Maybe he's going to call me to some other act of obedience I don't want to do. And it's exposing the fact that I don't want to do that. Well, what do we do? We bring that sin, that wickedness, that heart that doesn't want to love my neighbor, that doesn't want to love him, we bring it to him. And what does he do? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We got to be willing to walk into the light. We don't have anything to fear. And the tragedy, the fear, the foolishness that we can fall into is that we would hide in the darkness safe because we fear the humiliation of repentance. And we miss fellowship with Jesus. We miss the joy of being loved despite our sin. We miss his closeness, his nearness. We could miss eternal life altogether because we won't have him expose the light on our sin. But if we come, eternal life, everlasting joy, 
hope, redemption, forgiveness, and cleansing. And little by little, that pride dies and dies some more and it dies some more and we experience more and more of the joy until one day our hearts are fully purified. One day we see him as he is and we're transformed to be like him. It says we're changed from glory to glory as we behold the glory of the Lord, we're transformed into the same image. Where are you going to see the glory of the Lord? When you walk into the light with your sin and in his glory he says, I love you, I forgive you, I died for that. There's nothing more glorious than being forgiven by the only one who's worthy of punishing you. The only one who never did anything wrong. He says, I suffered for you. Just come to the light and see my love. We fear that when we get there, there's going to be shame. But when we do, we find only mercy. Only mercy. Everlasting, unimaginable mercy. And it's here for you. For you, everything you've done, whatever, you're addicted to pornography in this room. I know that that's rampant in the church. It's rampant in the world. We are in the city that is the literally porn hub is here. Maybe that's you. You're struggling with it and you can't imagine telling someone that that's your issue. Bring it to the light. Don't let it kill you in the darkness. Don't let Satan lie to you and keep you in the darkness. You won't get cleansing. You won't get freedom from that until you admit you have the problem. Maybe it's you're addicted to success. And all you want is just to be seen as uh, worthy, as, as glorious, as, as uh, uh, the best in your field. And so you live your life completely about that. Bring it to the light. It will kill you. It will strangle you. Not all sin is, uh, there, there's sins like pornography and then there's sins like addiction to success that are more acceptable in the culture. We bring it all to Jesus and say, there's a wickedness underneath this good action. There's a wickedness in my heart that I can twist anything to make it about me. We bring it to the light and there's redemption, there's forgiveness, there's cleansing. Do not be an unmarked grave. Do not settle for comfort in the darkness when you could have joy in the light close to Jesus. Amen. Whether you're never giving your life to Jesus and that's admitting just that sin is present, yes, do it. Bring it to him that you don't love him. Maybe you've been following him and you've been drifting. Bring it to him. Bring it to him. This is a daily task of Christianity, bringing our sin to him, receiving his forgiveness, walking in obedience, walking with Jesus. And it's sweet and it is good. But we got to come into the light. I'm going to pray for us. I want to encourage you, if you've never given your life to Christ, he died so that you could come into the light and live your life there. He gave everything for you. Don't leave this place without doing so. I'll, I would love to pray with you. Chris would love to pray with you. Um, you can pray by yourself, but I encourage you to talk to somebody about it. Share the good news of what he's doing in your heart. Maybe you're a Christian and you've been struggling with some secret sin, or maybe it's, it, it's even been secret to yourself, and it's, it's not one of those, uh, it, it, it's just not even the deeds you're doing, but it's how, why you're doing them. Talk to a friend, talk to a Christian, talk to a pastor, talk to somebody about it, expose it. Don't let it fester in the darkness. Shine 
light on it so, sa- so Jesus can kill it, so Satan can, can uh, be crushed under our courage, under our faith that Jesus is, is enough. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I confess that there are things in my heart that are not, that are, that are evil. There is evil still within my heart. There is wickedness in my heart. I can take the most righteous deeds and I can twist them. And I, I, we confess, at least I confess on our behalf, that we have evil in our hearts and we need your grace. We need your mercy. We need you to shut out the darkness, shut out the lies of Satan that would try to bind us and keep us covering ourselves with fig leaves, hiding from your presence, running away whenever you call us to something a little bit more surrender than we're comfortable with. Lord, kill all of that. Let us, let us have hearts that praise you. Change our hearts to be pure. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for this purpose. That you love us more than we can imagine. That you were willing to suffer so we don't have to suffer in darkness and then in the outer darkness for eternity. Oh, Lord, I pray you would awaken hearts in this room. I pray that those in here who don't know you would come to know you. I pray Christians in here who are terrified of people seeing that they don't have it all together would be set free from Satan's bonds, set free from Satan's lies, that we would put it to death tonight and then tomorrow when we wake up and then the next day, Lord, every day till we meet you and till we see you face to face. Lord, do what only you can do and what I know you're willing to do. We love you. We worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like more information about CU20 or our church, you can visit us at www.peoplesmontreal.org. There you'll find information about our location, sermons, and other services. If ever you're in Montreal, we'd love to meet you. Thank you and have a great day.